We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, finishing off the chapter this week. I think we're going to do something a tiny bit differently, if you can, and you've got your Bible open, would you stand with me as we read God's Word? We're reading from Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 23. Actually, sorry, we're going to read from verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. Please sit. The reason why I read the uh, last week's uh, section is because this is one big, long prayer that Paul has for the church of the Ephesians, and it's a really important prayer. When I was growing up, uh, my dad loved to wrestle. He was the kind of hands-on sort of dad, and I grew up with two other brothers, And they were both younger than me, and I remember growing up, spending a lot of time wrestling my dad, all three of us ganging up on him, and I remember at the start, we would all just get demolished every single time. My dad was just, you know, destroy us every time we'd wrestle him. He'd pin us all down, he'd wrap us all up in this blanket, and we'd all be like stuck, pressed up together. I remember it got so hot, it was so uncomfortable. Anyway, eventually we started getting a bit older. And as we got older, my dad couldn't really take on all three of us at once anymore. And uh, I remember I thought of myself as a pretty good wrestler, and I was the kind of friend that would just wrestle you all the time when I was in high school. And some people found it annoying, other people just loved it. They loved getting the chance to wrestle me. And I was good. Like, my dad had taught me well. I was a good wrestler. And none of my friends could beat me. And I remember my dad once telling me about this thing called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And it's a martial art, and it's basically grappling, it's wrestling on the ground. And so me and my dad were thinking, I was about 15 at the time, oh yeah, we're going to go to this thing, we're going to be so good. I remember getting there and just getting destroyed, me and my dad. And we got destroyed for a year and a half. We didn't once win a single wrestle. Because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a really technical, very tough sport, and it's designed to let weaker opponents beat stronger opponents. And it really does work. It really does work. And I remember I got to the point where I wanted to go into MMA, like mixed martial art fighting. I wanted to go into cage fighting. I'm not even joking. I was one point keen on going in that. I was doing all my striking and stuff. I was, you know, really wanted someone at school to try to fight me. I wasn't going to start it, but I wanted to get into fights and things like that. But it didn't really work out. But the funny thing is, is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu doesn't really make you stronger. 
It just makes you smarter. It lets you use the resources you already have to beat people who may have resources that are higher than you. And in the faith, in Christianity, we actually have access to powers that we don't even realize. We actually have access to the Holy Spirit in, in such a way that we don't realize the kind of power we can have in serving Jesus and in growing in our faith. Often we are like someone who thinks we've got everything under control, like I thought I was a really good wrestler, until I realized that I didn't know how to use my resources. I didn't know how to use techniques. I didn't know how to use all these things that were already at my fingertips. I didn't need to get any stronger. I just needed to get smarter. And a lot of time as Christians, we don't need to necessarily be better morally or better in our skills or our abilities. We need to be more saturated with the Spirit. And that is what Paul's prayer is for that church. That is what Paul wants them to see. And so last week, we saw he heard about their faith. And their faith was growing. And he knew that their faith was growing. Why? Because they were loving all the saints. And it was a good litmus test, wasn't it? If your faith is growing, the way you can tell is if your love is growing. If your love is not growing, i got some news for you. Your faith probably isn't growing either. Those two things are intrinsically linked, and Paul links them together. And so the church is growing. They're growing not in their, only in their numbers, but in their faith. They're growing in their a love for one another. This is a mark of a true church growing. And Paul has a prayer for them. He says, I'm not ceasing to give thanks for you. And he has a prayer for them. He's saying this. He says that I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and a revelation of knowledge in Jesus, in Him, to understand the hope to which you have been called. That's what we learned last week. But the prayer didn't end with last week, did it? No, this week we're going to finish off that prayer that Paul has for the church. And so Paul shifts gear. He talks about the kind of power that we have access to, the kind of power that every single Christian can benefit from if they are in Jesus. It's accessible to every man and woman who have put their faith and hope in the Saviour. And so Paul's prayer is this, that the church in Ephesus will know the power that works towards those who believe. That's what he wants. How much power are we talking about? What's the kind of power that Paul's talking about here? Well, in verse 19, he says it's immeasurable. So there's no scale you can draw up. There's no like, oh, this is like three units of God's power. There's none of that kind of stuff that's happening here. There is no scale. It is immeasurable. You, could, you can't understand it. If you want to understand the kind of power that God has towards those who believe, just stop right now because Paul's saying it's immeasurable. You can't understand it. It's over the top. It's lavish. And throughout the entire book of Ephesians, what have we found? God is lavish. He pours out his riches on the least of us. And he, oh man, he doesn't show partiality like we do. God is infinite, he's eternal, he's the creator of the universe. That means his power is immeasurable. You can't understand it, but you can experience it. You can't understand it, but you can experience it. So if you've been paying attention for what we've been studying in, the, uh, in this letter, you would have seen the phrase, according to, show up a few times. And I've actually had some people ask me what the phrase according to actually means. And it didn't occur to me that a lot of people don't actually know what that phrase means. It basically means 
on the basis of, on the basis of something. And so this word has shown up heaps of times. For instance, verse 5, verse 9, and 11, he taught basically uh, worded slightly differently, but it's according to the purpose of his will in those verses. In verse 7, it says, according to the riches of his grace. What it means is that whatever God is doing, he is doing on the basis of his character, on the basis of his will, on the basis of his grace. And Paul puts this in every single moment deliberately. You may be thinking like, gosh, Paul, do you you want to keep talking about according to you? Like you're just saying it all over the place. And there's a reason. Because sometimes we get tempted to think, man, like I, I believed in Jesus. I followed Jesus. Man, I've been killing it. I've been reading the Bible. I've been praying. I've been growing. And you start to think, hang on a minute. I'm doing this. And Paul's like, I've got news for you, buddy. You're not doing it. You are not doing it. It is according to God. It is according to his will. It's according to his character. And so he says in verse 19, it's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. We need his power, not our own. Like, if you want your power, go ahead. Go and, go and try your power for a while and then come back and try God's power. I don't know about you guys, but I want to skip that first section of going out and trying to do it in my own power. I'd rather just do it with the power that we're talking about here. I'd rather just do it with the Holy Spirit within me. And often we need this reminder, don't we? The reason we just hit on this all the time, and I've heard Shem talk about this many times, we do it through Christ's strength. We do it through God's strength. The reason we hit on this is because, man, how quickly do we forget this? Like, I can tell you, I've gone out to Brankston and been a pastor out there. I can't, I could probably, couldn't count the number of times that I've done a lot of that work in my own strength. And I'm like out there trying to do it in God's strength and I forget every day, constantly, that I need this power. And if we're not operating in that power, man, I'm finite. My power is like this. God's power is immeasurable. I'd much rather rely on the immeasurable power than rely on my finite, tiny, easily snuffed out, like a smoldering wick. I'd much rather God's roaring furnace of strength. And so Paul is talking about this immeasurable power that is towards us who believe, and it's his great might. His great might, not our own. So we work busily using our own strength. Let's all just like agree together right now. Let's draw on God's strength. Let's draw on his strength. That power is available. And how can we know what kind of power Paul is talking about? Because it's good to talk about the power, but it's not really defined. And so Paul actually gives us an example. He says it's immeasurable, but he's actually going to say, I'm going to give you an example of how that immeasurable power has been applied and it's in, the, it's in a particular work that God has done. What is that? He said that's according to the work in his great mind, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's the resurrection. That's the example that Paul's going to give you right now as the kind of power you have. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's accessible to you right now you believe in Jesus, if you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that power is at your fingertips right now. It's accessible. It is working in you. And without this kind of power, 
eternal life, sanctification, everything we hold dear would be impossible. It's because of this power that we have these things. It's because of this power, and that's what we need. God had to so fundamentally transform you in order to redeem you and justify you, and it was with the same power that he worked in Jesus when he rose him from the dead. So if you want to know, that's an immeasurable power, but there you go, you've got an example now for that immeasurable power working, and it worked in Jesus. It doesn't matter what your story is, whether you're raised in a loving Christian home, or you've had a tough, wild upbringing. Doesn't matter what your experience of life has been, it is the same power that turns a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And they are the same hearts in both people. When I was in Bible college, I had this lecturer, he was like an amazing mentor to me. I love the dude, I would really love to meet him again, but he reckons he came to faith at the age of four. Raised in a Christian home, I'm pretty sure he was a pastor, I'm pretty sure his dad was a pastor, long line of Christians, came to faith at the age of four. He says, I remember when I was four, I understood the gospel. He knew he was a sinner, he knew he needed grace, he knew he needed to repent, and he did it, and he's been faithfully following the Lord ever since. And we're just like, wow, that is a testimony, isn't it? That's a great testimony to God's power. Now, the power that turns a four-year-old heart into a heart of flesh is the same power that can turn even the most hardened criminal into a Christian, even a persecutor like Paul, a persecutor of the church. It is the same power. Now, we're tempted to see the power at work in someone's life. He's gone from really wild, and then they get brought into the kingdom, and then we're like, oh, we can see God's might and God's power. But trust me, that same power brings every single person to faith. Every single person needs that power. And so the same power that brings you from death to life is still at work in those who believe. It doesn't just finish with your salvation, but your salvation Man, that's a big example of it, isn't it? Think back to it. Think back to your salvation. Think back to that moment when God brought you there. I don't know how old you were. I don't know if you even know the moment. But it doesn't matter whether you know the moment and you felt the moment. It is the same power. It is the same power and it was at work in you because you would not be here today. You would not be following Jesus today if it was not for this power. Trust me. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. We're idiots. (laughs) We lose it, we'll lose it like that. I know if it was up to me, boom, I would be like out of here because I'm an idiot. But Jesus is gracious. His riches are extended towards us. And so Jesus, being resurrected from the dead, not only was resurrected from the dead, but ascended on high into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Notice Paul doesn't just say it's just the resurrection that the power was working in. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead and did something else. When Jesus ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father, that same power is also the same power that is working in you. Raising you up and seating you in the heavenly places. It sounds familiar, something that we've heard before in Ephesians, right? So being at the right hand of the Father, what's that trying to convey? Well, in the ancient world, if you were to sit at the right hand of of a king, uh, if you were to sit at the right hand of someone who was uh, in rulership, it was a seat of uh, power and victory. It was a place of rulership and authority. If you were at the right hand of the king, you would act on behalf of the king. 
You would make orders, you would issue decrees, you were able to seal things as if you were the king. And being at the right hand of the king is basically sharing rulership with the king. And so what the father has done with the son is he has, uh, the son has ascended into heaven and now shares rulership with the father and rules over everything. That is the imagery that's going on. Very accessible imagery if you were a Jewish person at this time. Even if you were an Ephesian, uh, Greek-speaking Gentile. Uh, and this imagery is really important because in Psalm 110 verse 1, King David says this. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Messiah was always meant to rule and reign alongside God. And a lot of people thought that was earthly. A lot of people thought that rule would happen when Jesus came the first time. That's why you can read about things in like John chapter 6. They wanted to make him king by force. Why would they want to make some random guy king by force, even if he did some cool things? Because they were expecting a Messiah that would rule. They were expecting this passage to come. And all the enemies of Israel would be put underneath the footstool of the Messiah. And that did happen. Just not the way that they thought it would. It didn't. It happened very differently to the way they thought it would. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And it's from there that his enemies are crushed underneath his feet, either by judgment in death or by Jesus making his enemies his friends. So Paul is saying, when Jesus was taken up to heaven, that power that brought him there and gave him rulership by God, that immeasurable power that God worked in that, guess what? Same power at work in you who believe. Same power that work in you who believe. Paul's not done. Paul's not done. We can, we can feel like, okay, Paul, like, all right, give us a time to breathe. Give us a time to, to like process this. But Paul's like, no, nah, he's going to move straight on because it gets even better. It gets even better. Verse 21. He rules far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now, when we think about Jesus ruling and reigning, this is how you need to believe it. When you think of Jesus' rule and reign over this world, this is how you need to believe it. These are the kind of words that you need to put in your head. Four words used here, right? Four words. He, he talks about rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named. And you get the point. There is no government, there is no clan, no gang, no empire that is stronger than Jesus. There is no name, whether it's Alexander the Great or Joseph Stalin. I don't care what people you can think of in the past that led empires, they ruled by force, but Jesus set his empire on love. There is no name higher than Jesus because every name dies. And Jesus is still alive. Because where are these guys? Where's Alexander the Great? Died at 33. Short life. Short life. Where's Joseph Stalin? 
He died one last time shaking his fist to the heaven of God. Where's Mao Zedong? He's dead. But Jesus is alive. All these names are dead, but Jesus is alive. And whether you're tempted to think, yeah, that might have been true in history. Jesus, yeah, back then he ruled and reigned. But I don't know about now. It doesn't really feel like Jesus is ruling and reigning now. Paul adds this little bit. He says, not just in this age, but also the one to come. Which means that over all time, Jesus rules and reigns. It doesn't matter whether you feel it or whether you see it, it's true. And you need to believe it because if you're not believing the truth and you live it and deceive yourself and thinking that Jesus doesn't have rule and reign in the things that you have, man, like you're going to struggle because you're going to be in lies. You're going to be deceiving yourself. You need the Spirit to convict you of this truth. And it doesn't matter where it is. Jesus' reign is far above all others, whether visible or invisible. Whether visible or invisible, Jesus rules over them. All right. What do I mean by invisible? Well, this also includes heavenly rule. Jesus is not just ruling over the physical kings and the physical queens and the physical people that we can see. He's not just ruling over viruses that we can test for that make people sick, but he's also ruling over spiritual forces. He's ruling over spiritual forces. And he also rules over sin, which is far more deadly than any virus. And Paul says in Colossians 2.15 that God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing over them. In next week's passages, he talks about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about dark, evil, spiritual forces. And the language of authority and power primarily is that Christ's rule extends beyond physical and into the spiritual realms. There are many spirits in the heavenly realms. We, can't, we don't have access to it. We can't see it. But there are spirits in there. And Satan, when he rebelled against God, dragged a third of the angels into rebellion with him. That means that there is a considerable amount of evil spiritual forces out there. And they are in rebellion to God. And they're busy at work in deceiving people and leading people into disobedience and destruction. Their goal is deception, accusation, slander. They will destroy the church as much as they can. And Jesus' authority extends over them too. They have lost the war. And Paul will continue to elaborate on this as we go through Ephesians. Paul says in Ephesians 6, in a sermon uh, 20 weeks from now, probably, a while away, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Did you catch that? Rulers and authorities. Who are these rulers and authorities? against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places right now, the spiritual realm, you can call it if you like, there are many dark spiritual forces at work. Jesus is sovereign over them too. You don't need to fear Satan and his fallen angels. If you're not in Jesus, yeah, you probably do need to fear them. (laughs) If you're in Jesus... You do not need to fear those guys. They've got nothing. Trust me, demons are terrified of Jesus. Have you read the Gospels? Every time demons encounter Jesus, they're all smug and feel like they're in control. As soon as they see Jesus, they're terrified. They're like, don't send us. Uh, You're going to come and judge us now. Don't send us to the abyss. And Jesus is like, just get out of him. Jesus, they're terrified of him. 
We don't need to fear these guys, man. If they're terrified of Jesus and Jesus is on our side, you know, when you've like, I don't know, like I was like an older brother to my, my younger brothers. And uh, so whenever they had any issues, I would always like jump in and, you know, being like two years older, there's like a big difference when you're in high school. And uh, I imagine if you had an older brother, maybe, you know, being with your older brother makes you feel more tough. Like you can, you know, start more fights or get more like, be like that with the devil. Do you think that guy's going to take you on when you've got Jesus on your side? He's going to try to use sneaky ways. And yeah, don't underestimate him. I'm not saying underestimate him. But don't let it be bold. Don't let, him, uh, don't let him ruin your faith. Don't let him ruin the power that you have access to in Jesus. And so verse 22. Verse 22. He put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It says here that all things are under his feet. That's the language of a victor. When a king, a conqueror comes in and he utterly annihilates a nation and subdues them, subjugates them and rules over them, you would get this language of placing them under your feet. It's a place of disrespect. Like if I walked over the top of you, what does that mean? It probably means that I did, like, did something really bad to you. I, you know, there's all the different ways that that could uh, be taken. But to be placed underneath someone's feet means that you are a conqueror. To be placed underneath someone's feet means that they are the victor. And what it's saying here is that Jesus has the victory. You are no longer a spiritual slave, but you're free. Death, sin, the devil, judgment, all of them have been defeated. They are all vanquished underneath Jesus' feet. And guess what? Even you who believed in Jesus, underneath Jesus' feet in submission to him. Because he won you by making you his friend. You were once his enemy, but now you are his friend. And God has given Jesus to the church. Did you catch that? Did you see that? The Father has given Jesus, the head over all things, to the church. Jesus belongs to us. And that rule is exercised on our benefit, for our benefit, on our behalf, for his glory. We are his body. He is the head. And the fullness of him fills all in all. The same life flows through the head and the body. Jesus shows himself in the world through his church, his true church. And he pours himself into that church. The church is the visible body of Christ pointing the world to its source. It is Jesus' character and grace that fills the church and through Christ, the church has everything it needs from God to be what it is called to be. Everything we need, every power is accessible through Jesus. Whether it's victory over hostile spiritual forces, salvation, all of it available for us in Jesus. In fact, victory over anything that sets itself up against Jesus' rule and reign. And that means you too. That means you too. Your sin, the things you're struggling with, 
your anger, your lust, your addictions, your envy, your self-pity, your pride, all of these things can be defeated by the power of God through Christ. All of those things can be defeated. The time for making excuses for them is over. We've read this passage, it's too late, we know now. We know that God has power for us, we don't have excuses anymore. We have access to it through the Holy Spirit. So that the victory that God wrought in Christ, number one, remember this, in raising him from the dead, number two, in seating him at the right hand of the Father, number three, raising him above every power, and number four, putting them under his feet, that same power that did all of those things, all four of those things, is the power that you have access to. The immeasurable power of God's might is what you have access to. Paul is praying that to the Ephesians that they might know the power of God towards us who believe. So all this time talking about the power that we have access to. But what are the details? It seems a bit abstract, doesn't it? It seems a little bit abstract. What are the details? Well, the Apostle Paul is not done because the rest of Ephesians is going to tell us how this power works in our lives. And he's going to start in chapter 2 with salvation. He's going to start with being brought from death to life, from being hostile to a friend, from being lost in darkness to having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. The power of God regenerates dead, and I mean dead, bloated corpses, can't raise themselves. He regenerates dead, sinful people and breathes the same life that he breathed into Adam to make him a living being. That same spirit comes into us and makes us alive to God. It brings unity where there was hostility. It's gonna, he's going to go on and talk about that at, um, in chapter 2 and all the way through to chapter 3. He's going to tell us about how the love of Christ that surpasses understanding can come to us and get us through every trial in chapter 3. And a lot more. But I don't want to steal all our thunder as we're going through Ephesians, but come hungry every week. Come hungry to get this power because God has power for us. Read ahead. Get into Ephesians. Study it. Pull it apart because this book has riches for you. Riches that you couldn't even imagine. So get into it. Dig into it. You've got to pay attention. Claim every promise that is given here. Pray ceaselessly for God to do this work. And if you feel like this work hasn't been done in your life, I've got Luke eleven thirteen for you. Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God is not stingy. He is lavish. If you haven't got that from Ephesians yet, you haven't been paying attention. God is lavish. Come before him in prayer.